Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Rod Story of Story Family Medicine here in Moscow, Idaho. We, of course, chatted about the coronavirus and COVID-19, and we also talked about what it means to be a Christian doctor in that order. Before we get going, I wanted to highlight Logos Press. If you homeschool or you know someone who is, you need to make sure you know about Logos Press. We create and provide products that sketch a vision of a whole life, a whole culture, a life full of beauty, tradition, education, community, laughter, and celebration, unashamed of Christ, and sharply at odds with the values of modernity, a mature culture with the church at the center, living out the good life, one family at a time. The purpose of education is not just to score well on standardized tests or to become a cog in the corporate machine. All Logos Press curriculum is designed to help you raise faithful, dangerous Christian kids. Find out more about us and our products at logospressonline.com. Now, without further ado, meet Dr. Rod Story. Alrighty, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, a special guest, Dr. Rod Story. Thanks so much for giving me your time. Glad to be here. So you've got a short amount of time, so we'll just skip the niceties. We'll just dive right in. Uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't start with what everybody's talking about, the COVID-19 coronavirus. Now, you're doing testing for Moscow. Actually, just for our clinic. Sure, for your clinic. Okay, sorry. It's a unique time to be walking this through. I think more than ever, I realize, man, people listen to their doctor and they're eager to get advice. And then they put that advice into play, although they usually go one step further than you okay. and, uh, anticipate. So that's, it's, it's an interesting time of being able to speak clearly and wisely and then think through. I think it's also an interesting time because getting the right message to the right people. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, just for you and your clinic, how, what does some of that look like in practice? Well, it's actually a different circumstance uh, depending on who you're talking to. So I just got off the phone with two uh, employers, medium-sized employers in our town, who want to be wise. And they're hearing from their employees concern because they're like, hey, you know, isn't everybody staying home? Why are we being asked to come to work? Uh, and if we are doing coming to work, how do we make sure we don't bring it home to someone who might be at higher risk than we are. Sure, sure. So just kind of yeah, so, doing so your best you know, there's give. really different levels. And I think that that's the challenge. And I even hear people mixing terms. And so, you know, what I would suggest is actually yeah. just being clear about the terms. So you're hearing a lot of social, social distancing. And that's the idea of basically keeping one person from being able to sit in the middle of a crowded room and pass it to everybody else all at once. It's the idea of how do you slow it down or not keep it quickly spreading through a town. I think there's a couple of blessings that come from that and then maybe some caveats or some, some areas of wisdom. The first is just the idea that you don't make a population of people all sick at once. And as a physician, I think, boy, you know, it'd be, not, it'd be good not to hear from all 900 and some of our, of our members of our clinic all at once uh, so, or having them all go to the emergency room with the same panic. There's also, I think, an awareness, and we saw this with the, uh, the swine flu that happened in 2009 where you got had a, every every student at, at WSU and U of I all got sick with the same symptoms all at once, all thought, if I'm smart, I should go take it to the emergency room so that they can hear from me. And every one of them descended all at once. And it was overwhelming. And yet 
the experience generally was that most of those people did not get terribly ill and could have just passed the time on their couch and just wrote it been best to write it out. And okay. I think that's very similar. The, the challenge, however, is that that, that social distancing, while ha- has some wisdom, it also comes with some caveats. The first is it's challenging to, to know exactly when to tell people to start that. You're seeing a lot of social pressure, however, and even our local town council has put it in an act that we can't meet in greater groups than 10. So there we go. Yeah. Uh, social distancing is here whether you like it or not. The other aspect of social distancing is that it tends to need to last longer than people think. So I think maybe people are kind of stealing themselves up for a couple of weeks watching Netflix or maybe listening to your podcast and catching up on past episodes. Where the some of the previous data from, from times that we've done this before, all the way back to the uh, 1918 uh, Spanish influenza, that was three to four months. That <laughs> is a lot to, to bite off on, and that has a significant implication for an economy or or a, a, a fearfulness that could maybe roll through a community. In that epidemic, they actually saw a second wave. I was so going to say, did, second winter, right? Well, it did work initially, but then it seemed to linger in the community rather than blowing right through and being done. So you have to, you have to be choosing wisely. Here we are. The second is, is more of a isolation, and I'm actually encouraging some of our elderly patients to isolate. You know, stay home. Let other people bring you your groceries. Those are the people who really need to maintain their distance. What I'm seeing is people are mixing the two. People are, uh, and, and our city council is probably going to be doing the same. You got, you know, the entire state of California that's telling everybody to stay home. That's in a pretty aggressive step, way beyond just social distancing. And, and um, there's, some, there's some thoughtfulness as to where does that go? Is that really necessary? I, I don't know that I would say so. Can you tell me about like one thing we've heard over and over is flatten the curve. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? It really is. It is an interesting idea. Flatten the curve means that you just basically slow the rate at which it passes from one individual to others. Um, and that's the idea that you're not getting a huge number. But that's what I was speaking to, that that flattened curve yeah. can last a lot longer than a peak in a valley that comes from just normal viral transmission. Got so we, we, 1918, they had the, the, the and they actually have beautiful numbers from that, that you can look back and say, wow, previous epidemics, what happened when we did social distancing? Those places that didn't, they had a huge number of people that got sick all at once. They had many, many people that died in those illnesses, um, but also it rapidly left town and away you went. Um, so there's some challenges that come from that. Absolutely. So, then there's a third, and that's the quarantine. And people are using that kind of for everything that we're doing. But quarantine really means that you've been identified as a sick or potentially uh, sick person with COVID. And you are just mindfully staying in a spot where you're not going to pass it to someone else. And that's, that's wise, too. That's really probably the best bet. So if, if, I, if I could start this whole thing over, I would say, let's test a bunch of people all at once. Let's identify those that have it and encourage them to quarantine themselves. Let's identify and isolate. And then let's take and really send the message to those high-risk people. Everybody else, yeah, wash your hands. If you can work from home, yes, let, limit the time that you're hanging out in social places. We're obviously taking it to a very different spot. Yeah. So is that primarily because things like testing were difficult to get to? Access was tough. So it's like... Yes. And there's a good backstory that I don't think is being told. Uh, Testing, and you'll hear a lot of uh, political uh, hay being made from the testing circumstance. 
We have had a test for a long time for coronavirus, but coronavirus is not the same as COVID. Think of it like uh, coronavirus as being a family of viruses. If you might imagine uh, a family uh, gathering picture with uncles, aunts, cousins, um, that's coronavirus. Every one of those people share the same last name. COVID-19 is that one bad black sheep in the family. Uh, It's one of that large number of family. So we have had tests. In fact, I was just talking to a family that tested their their at-risk little one uh, about six months ago who tested positive for coronavirus. But it was six months f- ago. It was of a fan of that family. Sure. So sure. identified that she had one of the viruses from Got that it. family. Not COVID-19. Not COVID-19. Got it. Um, and, and we've been able to test for a coronavirus family for a long time. But this is different. This is more individual. So let's look at the, the China experience. They, they did their best to testing. Maybe they didn't do their best. Um, but they tested using a test that's widely available for coronavirus meaning they tested for illnesses in the family. But that doesn't mean they identified individual cases of COVID-19. Test wasn't available. It's only recently become available that we can be much more specific to the actual black sheep of the family versus just testing for the entire family. And why is that important? Well, coronavirus is a family that, that routinely runs through our population. Every year, people get something from the family. Maybe it's uh, a much more mild and related, but not the same same virus. So that's challenging. The United States looked at the World Health Organization testing that was recommended, which was pushed out too early and too fast, and was actually a really lousy test. I was talking with an infectious disease doctor, and they they actually said, you know, this test not only does it miss thirty percent of the cases, meaning it gives a false positive, but it also is gives a false negative in about thirty percent of the cases. So lousy test. Rightfully so, the CDC said, we're not going to use this test. Let's develop our own. Uh, But that's that's really challenging to create a new test kit in the setting of an ongoing illness. Yeah, in the moment. In the moment. And amazingly so, the United States, the the place that you want to be if you're going to get sick, the place where medical ingenuity happens because we, we have a unique culture and we have the financing behind it, we're getting there. The testing is amazing. Like in my office, I'm going to be able to do some testing because of a private lab that is entrepreneurial and says we can pull this together and we can provide this and make it widely available. And we do it for $57. Yeah, so really unique opportunities, and it's coming. It has presented a challenge where we're a little bit behind in, in really being able to widespread test. Now, I've seen like images of or videos even on Facebook of the test. Is that the one that like they have a little, looks like a, just a huge swab? Yeah, it's a huge swab. Uh, we, we, we tell people that when we're, uh, we call it a deep nasal swab. Ooh, yeah, if you can imagine, it's, it's definitely um, unpleasant, but not terrible. It's not a blood draw. It's just grabbing a bit of, bit of mucus. And then what it does is it amplifies using a well-established DNA process, little pieces of the DNA that are specific to the COVID-19 and then it sets off a, either a, a either a yes we see that or we don't see it. Now you mentioned the with the private lab is where you're getting the tests. Do clinics have that opportunity everywhere? You no, know, I think the challenge is that the CDC is still encouraging a approach of let's only test those that are either at high risk or those that are admitted to the hospital, meaning very very sick with this, or those that are healthcare workers where we need to identify. 
I think that'll change in the next couple of weeks. Uh, like my lab and like many other labs, private clinics or general clinics will have access to many, many more tests. And the CDC has now come out with a rapid assay that should be even faster than ours. We have a turnaround time of, oh, anywhere between three to five days, which is not perfect tests, but at least gives you some information while you're waiting in your house trying to decide whether you can go out or, or how much risk you might have. So as you as we all kind of watched, just the the general narrative, as far as I could tell, was like, this is not a big deal to, at this point, like code red. Was, was that progression based on uh, more information? Was that progression based on, wh- how did we move from there to there? I think you got the code red because of media. And that's a challenge. You know, we live in a different circumstance than we did like with the swine flu 10 years ago. I saw a recent discussion that talked about just the development of the iPhone over the last 10 years. And I think if, if you were on your BlackBerry 10 years ago, you weren't getting uh, notifications of one death in China or two deaths in the Philippines. You, you, you weren't getting this constant little drip of worrisome news. We see news differently. And we also get news that is driven by clicks. Yep. and and. Uh, I'm not sure that that ad revenue drives the wisest way for us to get our information. So it has created a, a widespread panic. Should you be panicked? Really, I would tell you that there are, again, we need to get the message to the right people, those that are high risk, over age 70, those that have active lung conditions, emphysema, COPD, those that have had multiple heart issues, like particularly heart failure seems to be a standout. That information seems to be carrying out to the American experience. And that's why you see, like in Seattle, it was a nursing home that ultimately had almost everybody do poorly with it. But if you see the general population, it's not. This is a unique virus, and it's, it really is severe for those that are high risk, but for the general population, not. As a physician, that's a real challenge because I, uh, you see people who are going to significant um, extremes of hiding in their house, <laughs> stocking up on toilet paper, and doing unique things that seem really um, out of proportion to the severity, because I think there's just general fear. And on the opposite side, you see some older people having coffee who really need to get the message that, hey, you're the one that probably needs to stay home. And I feel like, especially when you talk about the media and, and social media, I've watched it go through waves of what was wisdom two weeks ago mm-hmm. is now like there's a juke move for that. Like, mm-hmm. well, it's not just the older people. There's cases in Dallas of like the 26-year-old with no pre-existing, you know, so where so that's like, the, I feel like that's a common juke move now is it's like it's not just old people. But what a unique experience that we experience news and a, and a 26-year-old that has one bad experience in Dallas suddenly becomes a panic juke for us. Right. That, that, is, that you have to step back and say, why is it that we now digest our news that way? And why is it that we are so quick to yank our money out of the bank because of a bad circumstance? Let's give us some perspective. And I know that there's a lot of pushback on this conversation. But as a physician, we regularly see illnesses that go through a population in the winter um, because winter months are when people go indoors and, and there's some unique things that happen in the winter months between dry air uh, that make our lungs a little more susceptible for getting illness uh, that otherwise doesn't bother us in the summer months. The heat tends to bake these things and keep them from being as active in the, winter, in, the, in the summer months. 
you know, what we see, influenza, and, and everyone says, oh, but this isn't influenza. Yeah, but influenza kills. And, and influenza is one of those things that we spend all fall saying, hey, here's an immunization. Consider getting it. Um, if you're an older person, go get it. Isolate during the winter. And then people say, yeah, whatever. And then you, know, you get something like this that seems new and unique, but it's just a virus. And it's a virus that goes around similar way, similar passion, and similar experiences. But surprisingly, all things in perspective, uh, a huge uh, uh, aggressive response in a way that that is is seems out of proportion. If Rod's story was king for a day, <laughs> watch in out. The, <laughs> in the in in the current, let's just say for Moscow. I mean, would you? How would you do it? I I think that there is there's there's levels of that, but let's let's just be kind of more straightforward. If I were king for one day, I would first off make this virus go away. <laughs> but that's just a rhyme. Yeah. Um, the reality is that I think that uh, what I would mostly make sure, sure people are understanding is first off, you know, use this as an opportunity to bless others, and, and I think that there is some wisdom in not passing things around, particularly to those high risk people. But the high risk people, they need to do more than social distance. They need to isolate. And if you think that your isol, if you think your social distancing is saving them, it's not. Um, they need to take another step. So help them, help them do that. Uh, I saw a beautiful picture of uh, someone carrying groceries to their shut-in parents who have a health issue. What a cool thing! I mean, let's do that, and let's use the tools that we have, which are our two hands and our two feet, to bless people. And, and maybe make some positive out of this, uh, this worry that seems to be contagious. That's good. People are congesting media at high rates. We've already talked about that. Is there anywhere that you would want to recommend, like, hey, this would be a great place for you if you are looking for general updates, N- not necessarily the ones that are clicking every five seconds, but... I'll tell you that I don't really have a good one. And I'm actually finding it difficult as a physician to get good information myself. Okay. Uh, I, you go to Google. I spent some time uh, trying to find some information on that testing to verify what I'd heard from the infectious disease doctor. Basically, that the original WHO test that they push out, terrible test, lots of false positives, lots of false negatives. Frankly, I have to dig down to 10 or 11 pages before I can get out of the clickbait stuff. Google is not helping us in this conversation. Facebook's not helping us in this conversation. The, the, the fake news on one side and the real news on the other side is all getting drowned out by, 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 by people's um, shares and by uh, algorithms. Really, I think, be wise, be thoughtful. Um, look at this as, as something that is not all that unique to humans and, and really isn't a, a wholesale change for humanity. It, it's, it's something we've seen before and we can work this through. Okay, do you have any, if you were, uh, if you were a gambling man, what what do you, what is the what is it what do you think it looks like as far as moving forward? Will NFL Sunday come, and we'll and we'll see kickoff? Or... Well, let's let's talk about real sports. <laughs> okay. uh, the, baseball. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm a little is concerned it, for my uh, baseball okay. season. Got it. Yeah, pitchers and catchers got uh, real. Yes, yes. <laughs> reoriented. I mean, sit in the upper deck stands if you have to. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> That's right. So, what do you think? Is this? Uh, I get more and more surprised at each date that gets moved. Mm. I guess. Dates keep getting pushed and pushed. I think uh, Cuomo, uh, Governor Cuomo, came on and was like nine months for New Yorkers, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I feel like... We might all be better off if nine, month, nine not, months... If New Yorkers New were Yorkers stuck for nine months. For nine yeah. months yes. 
Uh, sorry, speaking as an Idahoan. No, no, I love it. So, what, what, uh, what, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I think that we will, we will see that it's going to take some warm weather before we see this beginning to turn. And you know, so June is a good diet to start thinking that that this is. But that's that's challenging. This is going to be a lot slower through our population with people social distancing, because it's basically taking it from a a quick uh, brush fire to a to more of a peat fire, uh, just a slow burn, and that's challenging. I think on the opposite side, we ha- we live in an amazing time where we've got we do have technology. We were watching church yesterday. Man, we miss church. But what an amazing thing that we can be all in our living rooms together hearing the the word preached that we can be then turning around and blessing our neighbors by by picking up food for them or picking it up at Walmart and texting it in. I mean this is this is a remarkable time to be in the midst of this that social distancing doesn't have to mean we're disconnected. Okay, so we're looking for warm weather. I feel like so Texas is hand, you know, I feel like those southern states they're like we got this. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Although I think the dry heat of Idaho might be the the ideal one. But okay. don't come oh, here. Interesting. But don't, don't but also stay away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, uh, people are saying that uh social distancing, wait a sec, we already do that in Idaho. That's right. That's why we live here. <laughs> okay, well, we have about 20 minutes. So I want to do if we can just a sprint. Through your story, so I, re- I I wanted to have this interview because of the I, I suppose the mode of of doctoring that you do, which is not uh, seemingly as popular as today. I, I mentioned, you know, well you're speaking to one, but imagine talking to someone who has only heard of a family doctor in terms of like the Norman Rockwell painting. So you do direct primary care, correct? Correct. Okay, tell me about that. Absolutely. So direct primary care is really kind of a throwback, but using uh, some technology and, and some different ways of connecting kind of financially with the doctor to really um, step out of a lot of the red tape that we think has made medicine unpleasant and challenging and I think has actually kept many people from getting good care. So direct primary care is basically a membership model. Uh, it's now present in about 30 states, uh, legal in Idaho since 2015. Um, growing is a model, I think partly because there's such a desire for people to kind of get care and not have to work through the red tape of insurance and big clinics, but also because doctors are tired. Um, and I'm one of those. I would consider myself one of those family docs that said, boy, I don't think I can do this anymore. I've been really well trained, and I'm thankful for that training. I'm trained to do a lot. I used to deliver babies, really great at procedures, great at um, helping people think through their health risks, uh, work on prevention, but also dealing with kind of urgent care needs. Um, that experience of my training led me to a lot of varieties of experience. Uh, I used to be an ER doctor for about 10 years. I was also a hospitalist in our local hospital taking care of people in ventilators, um, uh, hospice director in the area, uh, rural clinic, just a lot of different varieties of, of what maybe people used to think of as what they would get if they went to their family doctor. Basically, a doctor that can help you through most of those first few things. Um, maybe with some thoughtfulness, kind of before you get shift off to a specialist, uh, see you for those after hours or weekends things when they pop up, because they do, um, handle those broken bones and stitches and things. Uh, what Bro- this is Broken done, noses. Yeah, broken I've seen noses. Real time, yes, yeah. uh, occasionally. Those are, those are very satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is just, it's a model that lets me do that. But really also, for me, what it lets me do is, is kind of be independent. 
And that's really been uh, a remarkable thing. Be a business owner. Actually own something, which most doctors have not done or even shifted and sold out in the last 10 to 20 years. Now, um, and you mentioned the independence being a huge part for you. And, and additionally, that you were really tired. Now, I imagine as far as all the doctors that have moved over here, your story is probably not unique in terms of the pressures, but maybe I, I feel like at the end of the 2017 there, you had, you know, there was a, the Washington Post article and everything else. Mm. Um, Absolutely. So let me give you some backstory. Finished medical school at the University of Washington, finished my residency through the Mayo Clinic, and then became that family doctor I always wanted to be. Worked out actually in my, my uh, hum, small hometown that I grew up in in northern Wisconsin. About five years. What I realized is there was no lid on it. Uh, as you were a good doctor, you suddenly became inundated with, with people that wanted to use you. And that's a good thing, except it brings along with it a huge uh, amount of paperwork and a huge amount of computer time. And so I, I really been burnt out. I was not seeing my family as I was spending hours every day, early and late at night, trying to catch up from the day's paperwork. Not stuff that I was doing for patient care, but really just trying to shuffled administrative stuff. Wonderfully found that I went into hospital medicine and ER medicine for the last almost 10 years. Really loved that because it was streamlined. It was taking care of sick people. There was hardly any paperwork. And then that kind of began to change. But what really ultimately made me come back to being a family doctor was that uh, while I was a hospitalist, our local little town hospital had a surgeon that really said, hey, I want to start changing people's genders. I began doing the surgery right in our tiny little 25-bed hospital. And as part of my job, I was required to, or uh, my job really his purpose was to help people get ready for surgery, certify them for surgery, and then take care of them after. And I found it a, a, a real conflict of interest to be asked to um, provide care in this circumstance where I was basically saying, yes, you should have this surgery, and I'm going to help you help the surgeon do it to you. So I left that hospital, uh, not knowing where I was going to go, but it's been a pretty, pretty great experience, pretty scary experience since, you know, leave, yeah. leave going, where can I go from here, uh, uh, and what can I do? And that's ultimately why I went back into family medicine. I'm, uh, and I knew I couldn't go back to working for a big hospital, a big clinic, because you know what I'm seeing? It's kind of become the pressure that you, you need to participate. Like, you might not do the transgender hormones, or you might not be involved in some of these other things, but you need to refer for it, or you need to start using those pronouns, or you need to be part of, the, part of a system. I don't have to do that. In fact, I, more, more and more, we get to be able to stand apart. What we're realizing is that as a Christian practicing in medicine, um, and those, that comes in that order, yeah. uh, that we are becoming incredibly different uh, as we, we walk faithfully. I was just working through a mission statement. We've been encouraged to do that, to kind of set who are we as a clinic so that we can kind of be open and be frank. I mean, as a Christian, first off, I recognize we're wonderfully motivated because of who we are in Christ to give care. That care doesn't come of some necessarily of just the skill that we have or of some ginned up heart desire, but it becomes of of Christ in us, and it motivates us to give really excellent care. The second is it makes us um, makes us different. Uh, it makes us uh, realize that we're accountable for that care. At the end of the day, whether I'm uh, speaking truth and love, whether I'm being honest and forthwith, if whether I'm uh, being wise in how I help people ne negotiate the financial aspects of care, 
uh, I have to give an account for that. Well, what a grand thing. I mean, we, we know that it's ultimately in Christ that we can stand before that throne one day. But that makes us radically different. Uh, and it's in little ways. It's in ways that we take care of kids. So there's a growing um, uh, push in medicine to treat kids as though their parents are toxic to them and to separate children when you take them to the pediatrician so that they can get the real scoop. We believe that's a wrong. We believe that parents are ultimately responsible for their children. And as a clinic, we approach that very differently. We also believe that in medicine, uh, it's not isolated from the spirit and the soul that people carry and the, uh, the, the challenges of dealing with that. So oftentimes we're realizing you know, as we are talking to people about physical things, that oftentimes there is a a, a habit or even a a, a, a a sin that might be um, cohabiting along with this medical consequence. As as believers, we have a I think a right perspective on where um, where a sickness and where where that comes from, and and really wisely how to think about it in a whole person aspect. We're also realizing that as we live in a culture, that we live in a culture that lives in fear, lives in fear of death. It, it, and, it, and you can see it now in this COVID-19. I think ultimately what we're seeing is a contagion of fear. And it's a fear of people saying, wait a sec, I'm not in control of my destiny. I don't, you know, and, and as they are challenged with uh, ideas that, that this virus could be lingering out there and could get them at any minute, they, they live with, they turn to just kind of uh, irrational behaviors, but it's all because of sin. You know, it's all because of fear and not knowing what their future is. Boy, as believers, how different we are. We can stand in faithfulness and we can stand, we can stand in knowing that, that, that no matter the hard or the good, it's all from God's hand. Um, and we can live without that fear, knowing ultimately what our future is. It gives us a, a thankfulness that we hope is contagious, a thankfulness particularly for children. What a unique thing. In our world, um, people are not thankful for children. They, they see it as a curse. They, they avoid it at all costs. Uh, we, we believe that that's a central calling for, for families to be fruitful, uh, that it's a, a hard but good calling that grows us up as we grow up others in, uh, into maturity. Um, and what a we think that that ultimately makes us different. We 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 see it as a whether a, a child is uh, oh a so-called surprise or whether it's expected that these are to be greeted with joy and and excitement and encouragement. And so we we want to as believers who happen to practice medicine um, take a very different perspective on children and family. So many areas, and uh, and it's amazing how deep that goes as we realize that that. Uh, that Jesus is Lord, not just of our uh, Sundays, but also of our medical practice. Uh, it radically makes us different, and we're glad for that. It, 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 it's an interesting thing because, uh, the, as you mentioned, the medical world is so highly politicized. There's so many, like with election year, and even it feels like the last four years have been election year, there's so much uh, going on that relates to medical stuff that I wonder, I mean, with that mode, does it undercut a lot of what's going on with, with, uh, with the shrieking? Well, I think it's an interesting time. So, um, the, the, the Senate is currently trying to pass a COVID-19 relief bill and it's so packed with pork. It's ridiculous. 
And that pork is actually quite challenging. A lot of it actually would impact our medical practice. Uh, they're adding on rules for direct primary care built into this COVID-19 bill. How bizarre is that? But you know that those are bills that normally wouldn't pass on their own merit, but because they're glommed on to a $1.5 trillion practice, uh, uh, relief bill, suddenly there's a social pressure to just get it passed. I think that that's, that's the unique circumstance. On the opposite side, we just realized that this does come down to a community feel. So you mentioned the Norman Rockwell. I do think some of what we do harkens back to that. First off, it's that removing all of that red tape of administration that often gets in the way of a doctor and a patient making a decision together. So much of what we do, we never have to talk to an insurance company for. And you know what? That's amazing. We don't have to to try and beg them to let us do the lab testing or the image that we know is right and good. When we remove that, we often realize, wow, we don't, we actually save a lot of money. Like, how crazy is that? Uh, and on average, our, our cost of care is about 90% less than even if you ran it through your insurance plan. I'll give an example. Eye drops. Our front uh, office uh, uh, lady, Lori, um, uh, we've been caring for them as a family for a while, and she brought me some eye drops that her husband uses for glaucoma. And she said, you know, the insurance plan, they're currently 120 bucks for this 10 mil vial. That's a tiny little dropper. That was the insurance coverage. The insurance is covering it. It's still 120 bucks. So we looked, she said, well, I looked it up on GoodRx, and it's 90 bucks if I just pay cash. Whoa, whoa, wait a second. The insurance price was actually more expensive. And if she just paid cash, 90 bucks. And then we, we looked at our wholesale, and what do you know? It's 35 bucks through our clinic. We don't make any money off that, no need to, because the membership covers our needs, and it lets us really be able to negotiate for the price. So we're talking, you have insurance, 120 bucks. Right. If you paid with, uh, out of your pocket, 90 bucks. If you pay through us, 35 bucks. That's, that's actually pretty, it's kind of the joy of the care that we get that's to awesome. do. And then what it is for us is we feel like there's kind of a community ownership, uh, kind of a cooperative, like, Going back to that Norman Rockwell, yep. that small town doctor where the doctor was available for the town and the town took care of the doctor. We're about that same size. We're about the size of a small town. Uh, and we feel that they're uh, giving us a little bit of uh, financial support. And I know it's not a little bit, but it's a, a meaningful amount and hopefully not uh, a good balance between being able to have access to a doctor you know is going to be there, who is going to be walking carefully and thoughtfully. Uh, and, and trying to provide the best of care. All right, Dr. Rod Story, thank you for giving us your time. Yeah, I'm thank you. you uh, do you mind if we pray as we finish? Yeah, please. Father, we just ask that you'd give us uh, wise words. Father, I ask that you'd um, be, uh, uh, help us to walk in faithfulness uh, to our neighbor, uh, but mostly that you would remove fear as you do, as you say you do. Father, thank you through your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.